I would like to invite Brother uh, Roland uh, for the scripture reading. Morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hate being tormented. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thanks, Roland, for the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. Great to be here with you. Uh, this year, during the season of Lent, which is a, a series of 40 days leading up to Easter, we've been preparing as a church to celebrate Easter by looking at some parables of Jesus in the book of Luke and, teach, and seeing what he teaches us about God's kingdom and how God calls us to live here on earth today. And last week, we had my friend Jeremy here preaching. He did a great job talking about the dishonest manager and teaching us about how God calls us to use our money shrewdly, wisely, to invest in eternal, lasting relationships. And today's passage is just a few verses after last week's passage. It's part of the same conversation. Jesus is talking still about how God calls us to use our money. But in this week's passage, Jesus is actually giving us a negative example, showing us what not to do and giving us some hints and some insights into things that can actually keep us from using our money properly, that can keep us from being the generous, loving, kind, caring kinds of people that God wants his followers to be. So we're going to look at this passage. We're going to see what keeps us from being the people God calls us to be, and then how we can actually learn to live the way that God calls us to live. And what we're going to see today is that lasting identity and right living come from building on the right foundation. Lasting identity and right living come from building on the right foundation. We'll look at sources of self, eternal outcomes, earthly outcomes, and our foundation. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for your word that teaches us so clearly how you call us to live. I pray that as we listen to your word today, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to receive what you have to say to us, that you would be at work in us to transform us into the people that you want us to be, that you would free us from distractions so we can hear you speaking to us through the words that I say. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, we're going to look at sources of self. Jesus, today, he tells a story and it has two characters in it. There's a rich man and there's a guy named Lazarus. And he tells us that the rich man lived the high life. This guy had it all. He, he had the finest couture designer clothes. He wore a Louis Vuitton suit over Gucci underwear, right? Like this guy had it all. And it wasn't just his clothes. It was his food too. He had these extravagant parties for all his friends with the best food, the best wine every single day. There was nothing about the good life that this man was lacking. And just to be clear, there's nothing in the passage that would give us any idea or any hint that this guy had gotten his money in a bad or wrong way. It seems that he just worked hard, he was successful, he made good money, and now he's enjoying that money, right? He's, he's just enjoying the fruits of his labor. It's everything that we get the impression of in this passage. There's nothing that says he got his money illegally or through shady business deals. He's just rich. And there's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the money you have if you're rich on one level. But then we're introduced to a second character and it throws this rich man's lifestyle into a new perspective for us. Because we're told that there's a second character and his name is Lazarus. He's pretty much the polar opposite of the rich man in every single way, right? We're told the first thing about him that we learn is that he was laid at the rich man's gate, right? Laid is a passive verb, which means he didn't do it himself. Someone else did it for him. He, he had to have other people set him there. So he was probably handicapped and disabled, unable to move around, unable to work. He's poor because being handicapped in those days, there weren't many jobs that you could do. And because of his situation, his ability to even eat was 100% completely dependent on the generosity of other people around him. Right? Presumably, his friends left him at this gate of all gates because they looked at this rich man and they were like, this guy, he's wealthy. He's well-respected in the community. He has the resources to make sure that our friend is provided for. If we want our friend to, to be taken care of, there are few places in the town better than this man's gate to leave him because surely this man of all people in our town will take care of our friend. And Lazarus, he's not asking for much. He wants the scraps that fall from the table. As the rich man's having his party, people are just piling up their plates. Stuff is spilling over the edges. He's like, just give me the stuff that spills over the edge that lands on the floor that you're going to throw in the trash anyway. I'll take that and I'll be happy. And no one gives it to him. And so he sits at the gate, just waiting for someone to notice him, waiting for someone to care. And no one does. The only, not people, but things that notice him are the dogs he has open wounds on his body and the dogs come along and just start licking his wounds, which sounds gross and it is gross, but for Jewish culture, it's even worse because dogs were an unclean animal in Jewish culture. 
So it's not just that they're licking him, making it hurt, making it more likely to get infected, probably sharing their fleas with him. It's also that they're making him unclean as they do this, like ceremoniously, ceremonially, religiously unclean. It's a horrible situation. He doesn't even have the strength to push the dogs away and stop them. Everything that can go wrong is going wrong for Lazarus. And yet, even at this point in the story, there's a huge hint from Jesus that Lazarus is in a better place than the rich man. How? What is it? Lazarus has a name. Did you notice that? Like Lazarus has a name. Little Bible trivia here. There's only one character in one parable of Jesus that has a name. This guy right here, right? Out of all the stories Jesus told, there's one person in all his stories who actually was given a name rather than just older brother, younger brother, king, when someone like Jesus never does something and then they all of a sudden do it, it's supposed to make you stop and go like, wait, why? Why in this story of all stories, does this character of all characters get a name? It's in order to contrast him with the rich man. The rich man has everything you could want in life, but he doesn't have a name. Lazarus having a name means that he has a lasting identity. He has a name that's going to stay with him in life and death. It's not going to go away when he dies. And the name's meaning actually tells us something really significant about Lazarus. Does anyone know what Lazarus means as a name? It means God is my help. And so Lazarus, everything's going wrong for him in life. He's set at this man's gate so that this man can help him and this man's ignoring him. No one is helping Lazarus. But despite everything going wrong in life, Lazarus has confidence that God is my help. And it probably seems like a cruel, sick joke as people are walking by on the street, seeing his sores being infected and licked by the dogs and he's starving to death. It probably seems like a cruel, sick joke that he was given this name. God is my help. But as we're going to see, God rewards his confidence and his hope that God will be his help. See, in contrast to Lazarus, this rich man, his identity is built on wealth. It's built on the things that wealth can get him, the luxury the parties, the ability to tell other people what to do. He doesn't have a name. He's just the rich man because everything about who he is is tied up in his money. And all the things that he builds his life and his identity around are things that don't last. They're not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. They just don't last forever. You can't take them with you when you die. You could lose them all in one bad business deal. Even if you keep them for your entire life, the moment you die, they're gone. They're not yours anymore. And we can see this dynamic at play in the story because the rich man, he builds his identity on these things that don't last. And did you notice as soon as he dies, his identity has gone. Never in the story after he dies is he referred to again as the rich man. He builds his life around things that don't last. And as soon as they're gone, he's lost himself. And that's something we all need to realize about our own lives and our world. Your identity, your sense of self, 
it can be lasting and secure. You can have a name. You can have confidence that God is your help or your identity can be fleeting and superficial. It can be built around things that don't last. Those are the only two options, a lasting, secure identity built on confidence in God or an identity that won't last built on things that won't stay with you. There's no lasting identity that's not built on God. And in our world today, just like it has throughout history, our world is pushing us and doing all it can to convince us to build our identities around things that don't last. Whether it's how much we can accumulate for ourselves, how much money we have in the bank, how much pleasure and comfort we can experience, how many followers we can get on social media so we can be an influencer, how successful we are in our jobs, how good your grades are in school, how good you are at sports, whatever it is, anything else. If you build your life around these things, on the day you die, you cannot take them with you. An identity built on these things as a foundation, it's a false self. It won't last. It doesn't have sticking and staying power. It's false not in the sense that you haven't really accomplished these things, but it's false in the sense that it promises you if you get these things, you'll have a secure, lasting identity. And you get them, and then you realize they can be gone in an instant. They don't last. And even if you can keep them for your entire life, the day you die, your identity is gone. But it can happen earlier, too. It can happen during this life. You can lose your identity, right? So, so for example, if your identity is good student, anyone here ever tried? You don't have to share. <laughs> I won't embarrass anyone. But if your identity is good student, what happens to your identity the day you graduate? You have no more report cards coming. No more grades to, to make you feel like, yes, I know who I am because I got another round of straight A's. Your identity, it doesn't last. It can't last. And maybe you decide, okay, I'm just going to transfer that to a new identity, successful employee. But guess what? When you start working, the criteria for success is totally different than it was when you were in school. It's much harder to know, am I doing the right thing? Am I actually being successful? You might be doing great and your boss for some reason just complains about you constantly and has nothing to do with what you're doing. You might be in a field where, like investing, where the best, best, best people in the field get it right like 60% of the time. And you go from being a straight A student to doing like, okay, getting it right 55% of the time. You're being successful by most standards, but it doesn't feel successful. And, and your identity, if it's built on, I'm a successful worker, it's going to feel shaken. It's going to feel insecure, right? And even if you can make that transition smoothly, get successful at your job, who are you when you're not working? You can't stop working because anytime you stop working, you lose your identity. Have you ever wondered why people in Hong Kong work such crazy long hours? Why we can't stop checking our emails even when we're on holiday? This is a huge part of it. Because to step away from my job, to stop working, it's not just to like let my co company down or annoy my coworkers. It's actually to lose myself. Right? This, is, this is why people with enough money saved up for 10 lifetimes can't bring themselves to retire. Because once they retire, 
they don't know who they are anymore. When we build our identity around things that don't last, our identity is permanently in danger of crumbling on a moment's notice. When we build our identity around things that don't last, our identity is permanently in danger of crumbling on a moment's notice. And even if you can keep that identity strong your entire life, on the day that you die, all the external things are stripped away and you stand before God. And on the day that you're standing before God and everything else is stripped away, is there gonna be anything left at the core of who you are? The answer to those questions has major implications for the outcome of your life, both in terms of how you live in this world and what happens in the next world. And Jesus in this story starts by telling us about the eternal outcomes. He discusses the eternal outcomes first. And he tells us that Lazarus dies, which is to be expected. The guy has no food, he can't move, he's sick, he's got infections that the dogs are making worse. I mean, everything that can go wrong is going wrong. He doesn't have a long life expectancy. So he dies. But when he dies, everything changes for him. Because he dies, and then the angels carry him away to Abraham's side. He's brought to a place of blessing and goodness. And just a side note briefly, this is a story. It's not meant to be an in-depth analysis of Jesus, from Jesus of what happens when you die or what heaven and hell are like. Um, the Bible makes it clear that God's people experience blessings after death and those who don't trust in him experience judgment. Um, but the exact descriptions that Jesus gives in this passage are probably more metaphorical than literal, more for the sake of conveying the idea of the story than for teaching us in depth about what heaven and hell are like. It's also likely that the place everyone is sent when they die in this story is more of a holding place while they await final judgment rather than like the place that they're sent in the end. So again, don't read too much into it if you're trying to figure out exactly what heaven and hell are like. And if you're uncomfortable with us talking about judgment, we talk about it for two reasons. One, because the Bible says it's real, so we wanna treat it like it's real. And two, we don't want anyone to experience it. And so we wanna warn you so that you can know how to avoid it. And so if you wanna know how to avoid it, keep listening. So first Lazarus dies and then the rich man dies. He outlives Lazarus, but he can't live forever. And just as the rich man and Lazarus were complete opposites during life, they're also complete opposites during death. Lazarus dies, he's carried away by the angels to Abraham's side, the rich man dies, and he's buried. And that's, that's what it tells us. And, and as I said, from that moment on, he's never again referred to as the rich man. His identity is gone. And rather than go to Abraham's side, he's brought to this place called Hades, which can just generally be the place where dead people are. But for this man, it's actually a place of torment, we're told. A place that fits the descrip description we would typically affiliate with hell. And so this man who used to be so rich, who seemed during his life to be blessed by God, now he's in a place of anguish. And while he's there, he looks up, he lifts up his eyes, he sees Abraham and Lazarus far away from him in this place of blessing. And he calls out, Father Abraham, please help me. 
send Lazarus, have him dip just the tip of his finger in water and bring it to me and touch my tongue to, to make my pain a little bit less because I'm in this place of anguish. Now, a couple things to notice here. First, this guy calls Abraham father. He, in his mind, thinks that he is a follower of God, that he's on the right side, that he is part of the same people of God as Abraham, which means in his mind throughout his life, he was following God. He wasn't rejecting God. He wasn't saying, no, God, leave me alone. Let me do my own thing. In his mind, he spent his life following God. And now he's in a place of judgment. And that doesn't make sense to him. It feels shocking. It feels unfair. And it's really important for us to notice this because it has big implications for our lives too. Simply saying you're a Christian because you were born in a certain country, because you prayed a prayer once, because you show up for church on Sunday, because your parents are Christians, none of those things make you a Christian. This guy had all of that and he ends up under God's judgment. As we're going to see in a few minutes, the thing that makes you a Christian is a living, active relationship with Jesus where you're building your life on him and on his word. So simply saying you're a Christian because you show up at church or because you're in a Christian family does not make you a Christian. The second thing to realize here is that this, this formerly rich man, the place he's sent is described as a place of anguish in flames. Now, again, the flames could be metaphorical rather than literal, which isn't to say that it's more of an okay place to be and it's any less terrible because even if it is a metaphor, it's a metaphor that's aimed at describing what this place is really like. I think about what fire does. It disintegrates things and, and destroys the structure and fabric of how they're held together. And as you look at this passage, you see that's what's happening to this man's identity. He's experiencing a terrible disintegration of his identity. For so long, he had his wealth to rely on. And because of his wealth, he felt like he was better than others. He felt justified in looking down on others and not helping those in need around him. And now everything he built his life around, it's gone in an instant. He doesn't know who he is anymore. All his false selves are melting away and he's realizing once they're gone, there's nothing left. And there's absolutely nothing he can do to get them back having this loss of identity on the scope of eternity, it makes it an agony that's unbearable. And this type of suffering, it might feel terrible. It might feel like an unfair consequence, but on one level, it actually makes perfect sense because this man, he had built his life around his pride and around his entitlement and his feelings of superiority. And he fed those things until when everything else about him is stripped away, they are the only things that's left. There's a writer named C.S. Lewis, and he talks about how the way we live during our lives sets us on a trajectory or a path. And, and so, for example, have any of you ever been around someone who you would describe as a grumpy old man? Yes. <laughs> now, have, have any of you been alive long enough that you knew someone when they were a bit younger who eventually grew up to become a grumpy old man? 
And do you notice the people who become grumpy old men aren't cheerful young men who all of a sudden wake up one day in a bad mood and then that's it. They set themselves on a path, right? One day they wake up and they're upset about something and then they just dwell on how upset they are about that and they get more upset and more upset about more and more things until their grumpiness becomes that primary thing that everyone else uses to define them. They set themselves on a path and they continue on that path until this, this thing consumes them and begins to define them. And C.S. Lewis says, you know, if we only live 70 or 80 years, the length of time we're alive on earth, there's a limit to how much of ourselves can be taken over by that grumpiness or that anger or that pride, whatever it is, that path that we set ourselves on. But if, like the Bible says, we live forever and that path is allowed to continue uninterrupted, what's that grumpy old man going to be like in 10,000 years? What's he going to be like in a million years? There won't be any of his original self left. He's just going to be a grump. This disintegration of ourselves is the completely natural consequence of the path that we set throughout our lives when we build our lives around things other than God. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there's something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. And for this man during his life on earth, he consistently, rather than nipping those parts of himself in the bud, he fed them. He gave them life. And now he's experiencing that disintegration of himself where his whole identity is consumed and overwhelmed by the absolute worst parts of him. So that's the second thing to see. The third thing to notice here, just imagine that you are in the, the place of anguish like this man who used to be rich. And you look up and you see Abraham and Lazarus in this place of blessing. And you have the opportunity to communicate with Abraham and ask him for anything. What would you ask for? Come on, this is easy. Yeah, get me out of here. I want to be where you are. Come on, this is, this is horrible. I don't care what it takes. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care what it costs. I just need to get from here to there. How do I do that? And did you notice? That's exactly not the request that this man makes. He doesn't say, I want to get from here to you. He says, send Lazarus here with a tiny bit of water on the tip of his finger. Why? Why doesn't he ask to get out? Well, on one level, he's probably just become so cynical and jaded and hardened towards God, so upset about his loss of identity that there's a big question inside him whether that place of blessing could really be as great as it looks or if he'll just be disappointed if he could get there too. But I think there's also a, another reason, a deeper reason that he doesn't ask to get out. And I think it's this, because with all of the suffering that's going on for him, one of the biggest things that he's suffering is this loss of identity. And more than anything else in life, what he wants is to get his identity back. He wants to be in a position where he can tell other people what to do and have them do it for him. He wants to keep believing that he really is superior to Lazarus and more valuable than Lazarus. And so because of that, he'd rather be able to boss Lazarus around in hell than be in heaven and have to treat Lazarus as an equal. He would rather be spending eternity in hell with his pride intact 
then give himself a chance of experiencing heaven, but have to kill his pride. That's the end result of feeding the parts of us that will become hell. It's not just that they become hell. It's actually, they lead us to desire hell over heaven because hell allows them to flourish and thrive and continue to grow. To be in heaven requires them being cut off from us. And we would feel like we were losing ourselves. We don't want it. When we build our lives on these false identities, on the things that don't last, it ends in misery. So that's the eternal outcome, but it also impacts the way that we live on earth. It's not just eternal outcomes that are changed. See, we see from Abraham's response to this man that actually his false sense of self led to wrong living during his time on earth. Abraham says, child, remember that you during your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, his bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Abraham says, look, during your life, you had everything. You had the means and the resources and the opportunities to help Lazarus and you didn't. You lifted yourself up and left him down low and now God has reversed things. And there's sort of an implication in what Abraham says that if you had provided for Lazarus during his life, things would be better for you now, but you didn't and so they're not. And the rich man, he has no excuse. He, he can't be like, oh, I didn't know about Lazarus's need. I didn't know that he was suffering. And you know how we know that? Because when he looks up and sees Lazarus, he knows exactly who he is. He knows his name. He passed by this guy every single day at his gate. He knew his need. He knew his name. And he just chose to ignore him, to harden his heart and do nothing to address this man's deep need. This, this false sense of self kept him from being generous. Now, just to clarify, Abraham is not saying that this rich man could have earned his salvation by being generous. What he's saying is the thing that kept you from being generous and the thing that kept you from experiencing salvation were the same thing. It was this false identity. Because biblically, salvation, it's all about having a new identity. Biblically, when you become a Christian, you transfer from being an enemy of God to a child of God, new identity. You transfer from, from hating God to loving God, new identity. You transfer from being a stranger and alien to being part of the people of God, new identity. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Being a Christian is about having a new identity and that new identity leads to new ways of living. But because this man built his identity around his wealth rather than around God, it kept him trapped in these harmful and wrong ways of living. Because his identity was built around his wealth, he could never give it away. Because to give away his money, it wouldn't just be to lose his money, it would be to lose a part of himself. Having false sources of self leads to ways of living that at best fail to help people around us when they need it, and at worst actively harms them, right? When we have our identity built around false selves, it leads us to live in wrong ways. I mean, a simple example of this, we've all heard this horrible story in the news lately about this model who was attacked and killed, right? Like, why did that happen? It's because the ex-husband's family had 
an identity built around being people who live in luxury. That's who they were. And when she threatened that by saying, you need to move out of the luxury apartment, she wasn't just saying, oh, things are going to be a little less convenient for you. They heard her saying, you can no longer be who you are. Your identity is threatened. And because she was a threat to their very sense of who they were, they had to get her out of the way, right? That's, that's what happens when we build our lives around false selves. And obviously that's an extreme example, but it happens every single day on, on more mundane levels, right? If I build my identity around being a good student and exams are coming up and you're my friend, but you're in need and you need me to talk with you and just listen to what's going on in your life, am I going to be free to help you? No, because taking time away from my studying threatens my understanding of who I am because my identity is built around things other than God. I'm not available to show you love. If my identity is built around being a good business person, being good at my job, and we work out a deal and we have everything agreed to, and then you back out at the last second, I'm not just going to be annoyed. I'm not just going to feel frustrated that I wasted all this time. I'm going to feel angry and bitter towards you. I'm going to lash out at you because you didn't just waste my time. You actually threatened my understanding of who I am. When we build our lives around false identities, it leads to wrong ways of treating people. It leads not just to wrong outcomes in eternity, but wrong outcomes in our life on earth as well. But in contrast to that, when we build our identity on God, it leads to right ways of living in this lifetime and to right outcomes in eternity. And here's where we see this in the passage. It's going to take a second. So listen up and follow with me. Verse 26, Abraham says to the man, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now, what does that verse have to do with right living? Well, look closely. Abraham says there's a chasm set up. No one can cross over from either side to the other side in either direction. But he only mentions one side where people would cross over if they had the option. Did you notice that? There's only one side that he says people would cross over from here to there if they had the choice. He says no one can go the other way, but he doesn't say anyone would go the other way if they had that option. Now that, that, that just feels weird, right? Like from our perspective, looking at it, being like, if you had the chance to move from hell to heaven, surely you would do that, right? And again, we've looked at a few of the reasons that people might not do that. The cynicism that makes them believe it, it can't actually be any better than this. That desire to be miserable with their pride intact rather than joyful without it. That natural trajectory that they've set for their lives that's just continuing on. So as weird as it seems from the outside, there are actually many reasons that people experiencing this judgment might not want to pass over into this place of blessing. But why, why, why would anyone in this place of blessing say, you know what I think would be a good use of my time? Let's go over there. Let's experience some agony, torment. I think that sounds fun. Why would that happen? Here's why. See, just as the destructive things about us, if they go unchecked, set us on this path 
of just having our whole selves consumed by them. When God is part of our lives, when God is at work in us and transforming us, he sets us on a different path, a different trajectory. And Abraham's side of the chasm is filled with people who are on this trajectory of being increasingly shaped into the image of Jesus. It's full of people who day by day by day are becoming more like Jesus. And what is Jesus like? On the cross, we're told that Jesus bore the terrors of hell on behalf of his people so we don't have to. Jesus paid the price to deliver us from the torture and anguish permanently. And if you have a place full of people who are becoming more and more like that man, what type of people are they going to be? They're going to be people who would willingly endure suffering and torment and anguish themselves in order to alleviate others who are suffering. That's the change that Jesus makes in our lives. See, being a Christian, the blessing of being a Christian, it's not just that we get to be in this place of blessing with God for eternity. It's that we have such a secure identity that even if we're suffering the torments of hell, we have peace and security and joy knowing who we are, that we're loved by God. He gives us such a security that we'd be willing to sacrifice our comfort and blessing in order to go in and help those who are desperately in need. The, the change he makes in us is so deep that we would be willing, if possible, to leave the comfort of heaven, at least for a time, and enter the horrors of hell to help the people there who are suffering. And remember, this isn't some magical switch that just gets flipped on the moment we die. It's the natural continuation of the path that he sets us on throughout our lives on earth. So we see from this passage that if we are like Lazarus, if we build our lives on the foundation of God and his word, if we live with this deep confidence that God is my help, it actually leads us to live as better people during our time on earth. It makes us people who are willing to sacrifice our own comfort and blessings in order to do good to people who are suffering. It makes us people who are willing to step into hell on earth so the people there can get a little taste of the blessings of what being with God is like in heaven. That's the type of people that, that Jesus wants us to be, that he changes us into. That's the, the change in the character and security of our identity that God gives to us and expects of us when we trust in Jesus. And that level of transformation, it doesn't just happen because we prayed a prayer once. It comes because we're living our lives in a day-by-day -day relationship with Jesus where we get to know him more deeply, we learn to love him more deeply, we trust him more deeply, and we become more like him today than we were yesterday. And we're not going to get it perfect every time, right? That's why we need Jesus in the first place. But each time we fail, it's an invitation to, to turn back to him, to, to find our identity in him again, to try again, to live in this way, loving the people around us like he calls us to. But you know what's really, really hard? There's nothing we can do in our own power to make that change in ourselves. It takes a miracle from God to change us in that way. The only way to experience this this change is to trust in Jesus and be united with him because he already loved us in this way. But once we have trusted in him in this way, once we've been connected with him and given this new identity by him, it sets us free to love others sacrificially in this way. And so how do we get to the point 
where we can know him and trust him this way and learn to live in this way? Well, that brings us to our foundation. Because we see the answer to this question right at the end of the passage. This formerly rich man, he, he turns to Abraham. He's like, please send Lazarus to my brothers so that he can warn them so that they don't end up like I am. And on one level, it seems like he's finally experiencing a change of heart. He's finally starting to think of other people besides himself. But actually, that's not the case. This guy is set in his ways. See, first, he's still trying to do whatever he can to boss around Lazarus and tell him what to do and get back to this place where I'm the boss, Lazarus does what I say. He's trying to regain that old identity. But second, he's actually saying that he's been sent here unjustly. By saying, my brothers have no way of knowing what the truth is about life after death. He's saying, during my life on earth, I had no way of knowing. It's not fair. I wasn't warned. If I had known, I would have done things differently, but I didn't know because there was no way for me to know. And so it's not fair. He's still trying to grasp for the old identity. He's still trying to make excuses why life is unfair. Nothing is his fault. And Abraham steps in and corrects him. He says, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. That's how Jewish people would have referred to what we know as the Old Testament. Abraham's saying, if your brothers would have just read their Bibles, they would know exactly what God expects of him. They would know how to trust in God and they would know how to experience this transformed way of living that God gives. All they have to do is read their Bibles. And of course the rich man doesn't like that answer. He's like, no, they need miracles. And Abraham says, no, if they're not gonna listen to the Bible, no miracle, not even the greatest miracle of someone coming back from the dead is gonna convince them that this is true. Church, the path to a secure and unshakable identity, the path to proper living, it doesn't come from demanding that God do some amazing miracle for us. It doesn't come from seeing amazing, miraculous signs from heaven. It comes from simply taking God at his word, from listening to what he says, making time to, to read the Bible and hear what he has to say to us, trusting that it's true, loving him because of it, obeying what he says. And of course, the thing that we know now that Jesus' original audience didn't know is that God was actually gonna do another great miracle. He was gonna send someone back from the dead to prove that all of this is true because that's exactly what Jesus did. He came back from the dead to confirm that this new identity and God's promises of forgiveness and salvation, they're all true. We can really believe them. And yet we see this reality in our world. God sent someone back from the dead and the people who wouldn't take God at his word just because it was his word, don't listen to the miracle either. If we weren't listening to God's word before, then we're not gonna listen, even when God does an amazing miracle and sends someone back from the dead. Church, God wants us to be people who trust in him, who build our identities around him, and who experience transformation because of it. He wants us to have secure identities built around him because the things of this world that we try to build our identities around, they won't last. He wants us to live in a way towards others that's generous and sacrificially loving. He wants us to experience eternal blessings. And he's telling us the path to all these blessings. Read his word, believe his word, obey his word. So will you make time this week to read his word? 
as you do, will you believe the things that it says are really, truly the words of God spoken to you, that they have authority to tell you what to do and how to live your life? And will you live in obedience to the things that it calls you to do? Because he's telling us that's the path to a secure identity and right ways of living. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this invitation to have a secure identity that's built on you and not a false identity built on things that will not last. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times we've tried to build our identities around things that can't last and for the ways that that's led us to treat other people wrong. God, teach us how to be secure, confident people with our hope built on you who are willing to sacrifice our good and our comfort for the good and blessing of others. Teach us to be people who build our lives around your word, who listen to what you have to say and trust it and obey it. Make us a community of people who are every day becoming more and more like Jesus because we're building our lives around him. In Jesus' name, amen.